1: So Jimmy, I have a question for you. Hello. What's your favorite Christmas song? Well,
2: there are so many. I are know. You talking that's tra- why traditional or yeah. uh,
1: new? I'm just just favorite.
2: Well, I would say of the traditional ones, O Come O Come Emmanuel is one of my favorites. Of the newer ones, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. <laughs> Let, Let your, your heart be light. I think that's what it is. I mean, <laughs> I say it's my now, favorite. <laughs> our troubles will be oh. out
1: sight. See, I don't know all the words. Of course, you know the word the lyrics to Christmas songs, whereas I know the lyrics to non Christmas songs. Here's the thing: I barely even knew the second line of that song, so it's my favorite.
2: But I'm I'm really bad with the lyrics. That's just me. It is a very good song. It's just
1: me. That's actually, I'd, I'd say that's one of the Christmas songs that I enjoy. I'm not a big Christmas music person. Is some of them really edge on hokey,
2: like super hokey? And that song is traditional, like Frank Sinatra's version. Yeah. Of it see, I incredible. tend to like that style. Like yeah. chestnuts
1: roasting on an open fire is probably my favorite, but it's very similar style, right? Yeah.
2: When's the last time we had chestnuts roasting on an open fire? I don't think I've ever had that happen in my life.
1: You've never had chest? Oh no, but I've eaten some recent, maybe recent, not the, a few months ago. My dog loves chestnuts, really? roasted chestnuts. It's weird. Interesting.
2: Well, how's it going, everybody? My name is Jimmy Wong, and you are listening to the Command Zone Podcast.
1: How's it? It's Josh Lee
2: Kwai. It is Christmas, I think. It's um, around or, Christmas. It's, or this episode will be released after Christmas. So no, what... no,
1: it's going to be before Christmas. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well,
2: then what better thing to talk about than war?
1: <laughs> you know, one of the famous stories about World War One is uh, Christmas-related. We won't cover it in this episode. Oh, I, but... that's, a
2: great, that's a great point. Yeah. Maybe we'll co- Maybe we will talk about it in the end step.
1: it be um, a nice goodbye message. Yeah, so the topic today... I was recently reading Barbara Tuckman's Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Guns of August, which is a book about the lead up to World War I. Um, this caused me to go back and re-listen to a series of my favorite podcast called Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, which he's got a series within that podcast called The Blueprint for Armageddon. It's like a six part series where he talks about the entire World War One. And as I was going through, I was sort of struck by how many little moments or little analogies and metaphors within the conflict, especially the lead up to the conflict, kind of mm-hmm. reminded me of a game of Commander and a lot of little lessons you could learn. So I thought we could do an episode similar to our Art of War, our Machiavelli episode. Some of our
2: favorite people love those episodes, so mm-hmm. we're here to bring you some more.
1: Yeah, so we're sort of, instead of a, a historical text, we're talking about a historical event. So we're talking about World War One, which was called... The Great War.
2: The Great War. It was also
1: called the War to End All Wars, which turns out, spoiler alert, it was not the war that ended all wars. It was actually the war that actually started, <laughs> started.
2: another World War 21 years later. Which so. is even Ay, worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, were the death toll is in World War II higher. Yes. Already? Yeah, yeah.
1: The Eastern Front alone in World War II is more deaths than the yeah. entire of World War One. Anyway. Um, Same tactics, better weapons. Yeah. So the, well, before we get into that, we need to talk about our sponsors. That's right. <laughs> Such an interesting segue. <laughs> Not a great segue.
0: Segway man is like
2: sitting there looking at us like, really, guys?
0: Segway <laughs> man went like
1: this. Uh,
2: well, let's let talk about our sponsors regardless. Cardkingdom.com slash command zone. Uh, Cardkingdom has been with us now for uh, quite some time. Obviously, Over a year. Yeah, they're great. I mean, they're just great. That's all I'm going to say about it. Go to their website. You can buy all sorts of product there. They ship ridiculously fast. And uh, customer service is awesome. I've never heard uh, a single complaint that wasn't addressed. You know, That's a big thing. A lot of voices go into the night and then come back. But Card Kingdom, they're always there addressing people. I actually met their uh, in-person customer service team last time I went up there. It's two lovely people working in a small office, and we connected, and they were just as nice as I thought they would be.
1: Yeah, it's great. And when you use that affiliate link, again, cardkingdom.com slash command zone, you are keeping the lights on here, keeping game nights and all of our content flowing. Yes. Our other great sponsor is Ultra Pro. They make all of the theme stuff that comes with every set. So you've seen it on game nights, right? All the Mm -hmm. praetors on the play mats are for Unstable. We had... All of the, uh, you know, like the Earl of Squirrel deck boxes and sleeves. They, they make also so make cool
2: stuff. These are like giant table play mats.
1: Yeah, this is a huge play mat. This they make regular deal. size play mats. They have the Eclipse sleeves. They have sweet metal dice like the Gravity dice and the Heavy Metal dice. So many ways that you can support our content in the show by purchasing items from Ultra Pro, also at Card Kingdom, and the final way to support our content is by going to patreoncom zone. We call out one lucky patron every single episode. And this episode is dedicated to somebody we know a little bit better than most of the patrons we, we normally call out. It's the admin for our Discord server. Yeah, it is Matthew Matthew, oh, Matthew
2: Louch. Or at Mr. Migs Media. Thank you, Matthew, for uh, taking care of the Discord. You guys can get access to the Discord if you head over to patreon.com slash command zone, and that's available to certain people at a selected tier. It's so, a really cute community. Everyone talks, and they're all friendly.
1: It's a great place to go to should ask
2: participate for... more, so I'm sorry, to our patrons on there. <laughs> we've been, on there we've been
1: so busy lately that it's been hard to jump on <coughs> there. It's one of my New Year's resolutions to get on the Discord more and chat with people. Yes. But there's a lot of really experienced EDH players on that Discord server, and mm-hmm. a lot of questions getting answered there. Yeah. Uh, so I would recommend it if you're a patron and you're not already, already involved. I also wanted to give a shout-out to a guy I met at PetSmart who uh, listens to the show. Hey. Eugene, if you're out there. You also rock thanks thanks eugene
2: thanks for listening and watching the command zone podcast all right that wraps it up for today
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right let's move on to our let's move on to our main topic uh and we're calling it lessons from the great war so these are commander lessons we can draw from world war one i wanted to state a disclaimer at the start okay we're not historians i'm not a historian jimmy's not a historian you know, there's something that Dan Carlin, who does my my favorite podcast, mm-hmm. likes to say. He says, I'm not a historian. I'm a fan of history. Oh. I would like to echo that. Um, also, there's a lot of controversy surrounding interpreting historical events, right? Yes. Especially when you start interpreting, like, motives of people. But even just what happens can be controversial. Um, so I'm sorry if we sort of take things in a direction that you don't agree with. None of these are based on just stuff we think so much as things we've read or heard. Um, We will also probably
2: maybe making a couple of small errors here and there historically. Now, we're talking about a war that happened in the early 90s, so a lot about this- 1900s. 1900s, sorry. It's 100 years old. Not 90s, yeah. yeah. 1990 with another zero at the end and the one in the beginning. <laughs> uh, there is a lot, obviously, that was documented about the war, and there's a ton of information on it, but this also isn't the digital age, so we don't have access to the exact records of everything.
1: Well, and also I will say that like, if you, as you read books from the different generals and people involved in World War One, you start noticing that people are really biased in what they're writing. Like Winston right. Churchill is going to tell you stuff that makes Winston Churchill look good, and he's a great <laughs> – listen, I love Churchill, but he's biased as hell. And so is if you read like, you know, von Moltke or somebody that was on the German side, they're going to be biased towards that. And so disseminating fact is always tough. One thing I wanted to point to was when we did our Machiavellian episode, there was a whole bunch of people that started commenting to us. Machiavelli, the prince is satire. It's satire. satire. It's parody. Which is definitely a theory that's out there in revisionist circles. I don't actually happen to agree that that's true, but Mm -hmm. hey, listen, I don't know for sure, and neither does anybody, and certainly people have taught that it's satire, but there are plenty of people out there saying that it's not. So you see the problem that we're in. Hopefully you'll give us a little bit of a break on things like that. Um, We're also only going to talk about sort of the lead up and the beginning of the war. We're not talking about the entire war. It's just huge. It's too much. It's an enormous conflict. We can't cover it all. Okay. (laughs) We would kill ourselves trying to do so. All disclaimers out of the way. I know. I'm going to try and hook the people back in that are kind of waning. They're like, history? history. Eh. 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 World War I is like one of the most interesting time periods in the history of the planet. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. One is it's a time of like amazing change, right? So in this conflict, there will be at least three of the major countries that are led by monarchies. Mm-hmm. This is a time when there are machine guns. Like you don't think of like kings and queens and stuff. You think of like swords and yeah, yeah and the yeah. rest, right? But Russia, Germany, they have emperors. It's kind of there are going to be soldiers riding off into war on horseback mm-hmm. with literal lances, <laughs> like knights used to carry. Yep. Again, this is a war that has airplanes and machine guns. And by the end, we're going to have tanks. There's submarines in this war, so this is like a collision of like two different eras. Yeah, it just
2: it spans a huge period of time too, and not to mention a lot of people were involved in this war. I think seven million soldiers died.
1: There's a lot of casualties. Nine million
2: civilians. Yeah. The war
1: lasted from
2: oh 1914
1: to 1918, really. I think it technically ended in 1919. Yeah. Is that true? Uh, no, 1919 was when the Versailles uh, Treaty was signed. signed. Yeah. yeah. So we we'll talk about that at the end, actually. That's pretty interesting. So it's, very, it's a time of a lot of change. It also mimics a Commander game in two really interesting ways that I think a lot of conflicts throughout history don't. One is there are a lot of players So in a normal war, you might have one or two, or sorry, you can't have one, right? You might have two or three. This has a ton of different countries involved. So it really sort of sets you up in that sort of multiplayer politics that we're used to in a game of Commander Mm -hmm. of five, you know. In this case, there's more than five, but there's five major players in this one. And so you get a lot of the cool, interesting geopolitical dynamics that you would get in a game of Commander. There's a lot of jockeying for position. There's a lot of alliances. In fact, this war is known for like a complex web of alliances that kind of Sets it off. That's where it started. Yeah,
2: was everyone had a bunch of different alliances in Europe, and then things started to get real hairy
1: once a couple of people were murdered, and some people were like, "We want, we want change." The dominoes start to fall with the alliances, and weird stuff happens. Britain, Great Britain, is actually in a weird position at the beginning of the war where they don't have a hard alliance with anybody. They can kind of stay out of it. Some stuff happens. It's very much like a commander game. Yeah, where like Br- Great Britain's almost the player that's like sitting there while the other players start to get mad at each other, and like I don't have to get involved. Maybe I won't get involved. Yeah. Maybe it's better for me if I this don't with the US too it's just being like I'm gonna put a I'm gonna play some walls right? US now. is g- called the great neutral at this time
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the second thing that makes it a lot like a commander game is because you have a lot of periods in human history where th- what we just talked about is kind of the case where there's some tension between a lot of different nations but there's not gar- like a commander game can't end with everybody just like okay and then we all lived happily ever after and we <laughs> held hands and we walked away right somebody has to be victorious and so one of the things that's Unique about this time period is that it's a tinderbox. It's a powder keg. Mm -hmm. It is a time when a massive amount of militarization was happening. So there was a feeling that conflict and war between Europe and the great powers was kind of inevitable. It was going to happen. And so that leads to a lot more parallels to a Commander game than you would maybe normally have.
2: Not just any Commander game. This is a Commander game where, again, you do have some people playing vanilla creatures, but you also have people bringing in tanks and guns and crazier things. There was a huge arms development, I think, in Germany specifically. And the statistic is that military spending increased 50%.
1: Yeah, 50% across the board for all of the nations. And it was very destabilizing. Well, let's talk about German, the German Empire a little bit. So, spoiler alert, World War I... Germany loses.
0: Spoiler
1: alert. I'm just going to put that out there right now oh, yeah. in case you somehow don't know this thing. It's going to be very easy to get confused, but the German Empire of 1914 is not the same as Germany nice. of the Second World War. It's not Nazi Germany. It's not... It doesn't have all the sort of baggage that comes with with that, right? Yeah. And in World War II, we have a very clear narrative of like, that's... They're evil. Mm-hmm. They're straight evil... You well, know, they had their own. The name. Holocaust and everything. they are like, the
2: Allies, and they're the Axis. Yeah.
1: Well, they have names in World War One as well, but it's not specifically the act. You know, it's, yeah, it's they're little, not evil, right? They're right. not. They're not. Now, they might. There's arguments over who's responsible for the war, but Germany is not. You have to separate them from World War Two, which hasn't happened yet. Hitler is involved in this war, but he's like a a colonel or something in the uh, in the German army. He's right. he's like a soldier. He's not a leader of any kind. Um, so the German Empire. How it starts is in 1914. It's kind of like a fairly young nation. Um, they were created by combining the Kingdom of Prussia with a bunch of smaller German states, and they'd had a war about 45 years earlier with France, where they basically trounced France. And
0: that then after that war,
1: yeah. And then <laughs> after that war, the German states and Prussia just signed a bunch of papers and said, "Okay, we're the German Empire," and all of a sudden, just boom, they were like one of the most powerful nations in the world. So. The, this is something you need to know because it leads to a lot of what happens. So Germany is this new power. They've recently fought the French, defeated the French, and as a result, they took some territories called Alsace-Lorraine from France, and they now control that. And the French are, as you can imagine, not very happy about that. Mm-hmm. So this is the first lesson that I draw a parallel to Commander. And it's that it's foolhardy to look at each game of EDH within its own bubble, right? Ah. So that is a calculation that you have to make, right? Like Mm -hmm. You can't just naively think, oh, this is its own little in a bubble game and nothing that's happened before is gonna affect it.
2: It's how you end up losing a lot of games too because let's say you have a player A and a player B, player B being me, Jimmy, and player A goes, well look, every time I swing at Jimmy first, because he loves playing bigger creatures, he doesn't really complain, doesn't care, he just ends up playing the game, and it's it's easy. I get free swings on them Yeah, all he never the time. makes me pay for it. Whereas in war, if you just randomly trounce into someone's country, and was like, I'm going to take out part of your army because they're weak, and you have no defenses, it would 100% be both a declaration of war and also something that you retaliate or you take action against. But if you never do, then you're just a country that would just let other people roll over you, and very soon you'll find out that you're not going to be a country anymore.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's really well said. Um, so that was sort of the first lesson that I took from this lead up. The second one is an interesting one, and that's geography is important in this war. So Germany, if you look at it on a map, they're basically surrounded, right? They don't have any natural barriers, really. At this time, they're allied with another empire called Austria-Hungary, uh, which isn't an empire anymore. They've obviously split off into a bunch of different countries. But this time, they're another sort of very powerful nation state. So you got Germany, then south of them, you have Austria-Hungary. Mm-hmm. And then to the east of Germany of Russia and to the west you have France. So Germany's in this precarious position where France is on their left, France is not like them, they had gotten a fight with them and took some of their territories earlier, and Russia's on their east. Now there was a famous German chancellor named Otto von Bismarck and he had a strategy at this time which was be friends with the Russians. At the time at this time in the world there's basically five kind of very powerful or superpowers, right? It's Great Britain, France, mm-hmm. Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary. So, if Austria-Hungary,
2: by the way, is Austria-Hungary. Yeah. Just think of it as one it's the, for the yeah, listeners. Yeah,
1: Austro-Hungarian Empire, if you will. So Bismarck was just kind of doing, I mean, he's a brilliant diplomat. I'm going to simplify, but he was doing basic math, right? There's five powers. Mm-hmm. You want to be on the team with three of the powers. We've got Austria, we're Germany, we have Austria-Hungaria, or Austria-Hungary, mm-hmm so let's be friends with Russia. And now it's always going to be three against two. If anybody messes with us for a long time, that was their strategy. You know, I think that's pretty mm-hmm. simple, right? A lot of us in EDH would get that. I want to be on the team with three of the players rather than two of the yep. players. If I'm in a five player game, but what happened is Otto Bismarck, the chancellor who had this strategy, this political strategy, he was getting a little bit old, older, a little longer in the tooth. The Kaiser, who's the emperor of the German empire, the ruler, if you will, Kaiser means Caesar. And he eventually gets rid of von Bismarck. He sacks him. And he's kind of this young up-and-coming guy. And he's like, you know, how am I going to be the leader and my own man if I've got this old guy looking over my shoulder all the time? And he, and, he, and he lets him go. And then he immediately pretty much doesn't uphold the whole let's be friends with the Russians strategy. Right. He lets the Russians, their deal with the Russians kind of expire. He doesn't renew it. And the Russians kind of immediately go and make a deal with the French and, and now the, the Germans, and now the Germans are in this position that they didn't want to be in. They got an enemy on their west border and an enemy on their right border, and so this got me really thinking because Commander is the only format where geography matters.
2: Mm-hmm. In the where other you're sitting too,
1: yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. In the other formats, it's one v one, so it doesn't matter if I'm on the left side of the table, right side of the table. It doesn't matter where I am in relation to my opponent because they're going to go after me and then I'm going to go after them. Right. But in Commander it's not like that. It's told it can be totally different if Jimmy and I are playing in a game and you're, you know, if you're sitting next to my left or two to my left or just or you're going to take your turn right before me. Yeah. This is something that I think we've touched on on the show before but we haven't gone into great detail about and honestly I don't have a ton of the answers but I know that this is kind of an unexplored part of the format where I think a lot of it's something we should all probably think about more while we're playing.
2: Well, let's think about it this way. So let's talk about Vidalcan Orrery for a second and yes. why it's so important. It's that you, we've talked about this a lot where you can reorganize your turn order by essentially deciding when you get to take a turn. Or a card like the Prophet of Kruphix was equally good because it allowed you to have extra turns in between everyone else's because you always got to untap and cast stuff. So... Having Vidal Canora is really good because it allows you to be the the Loki of the table, I guess. You get to really decide when you get to do stuff at the most opportune moments, or you get to respond to pretty much everything but it makes you a big friend. Now, every time that we play game nights, I always find that I'm either one seat away from you in front or in back.
1: Well, we never, we purposely never sit ourselves on the same side of the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just oh, definitely not. <laughs> well, and just because it would look like it's game nights, it's command really, zone yeah. against somebody, so it's tougher to do it.
2: Yeah, but as a result, almost always you're passing the turn to me or I'm passing the turn to you. And yeah. I found that it makes a huge difference because one, your actions are the freshest and like the things you do, I also find that's very easy to mentally just be like, I'm going to attack someone that's in front of me as opposed to the side. And yeah, that's a
1: really good too. point. Just mental, it doesn't really make sense, but it's a lot easier to be like, well, I'm looking at you, and yeah. I used it. Yeah, it's a lot easier to be like,
2: even if that person is completely open, I find that you just mentally bias the people. You that generally won't attack directly to the from. left. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, that's interesting. Also, you, if you're going to pass the turn to someone, you don't usually. I don't like attacking that person and be like, pass turn to you. I just dealt you twenty damage.
1: It way, feels way better to do it to somebody who's going to take a turn one or two because the person that you pass the turn to could do something that overshadows what you did. Yeah, exactly. It's like a buffer of time you've created. That's
2: kind of what you're hoping for, honestly. Yeah,
1: that's a really interesting strategy. Again, geography is really important, so you might choose to attack somebody based on things like that mm-hmm. where normally if, if you took all that out of the equation, if geography wasn't important, you would just be like, well, that's the person to attack. Yeah. Um, I really like that. I like to think, like, who went first in the game. That's important. Mm-hmm. So, like, my turn five, if if I went last, you know, I might not want to... Or, or let's say I went second or something. I might want to hit somebody who's behind me in turn order. Right. So that they're actually... You know, their next turn, it, they're not going to actually have more resources. They're not going to be on turn seven when I was on turn six. They're going to be on ter- turn six after I was on turn six or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might sort of have to do with how who i attack or or who i'm going after
2: well it's interesting too because whenever you do end up attacking someone you create you start creating the rift between you two and you almost i usually don't attack someone unless i know that i'm trying to kill them with combat damage or i can just end their game right now otherwise it just it feels completely useless to do something like Like two damage yeah two damage or whatever it's like are you poking at them to make them angry or not Mm, you gotta be careful.
1: I've talked about also, like, when I'm making a deal with somebody, I'm worried about where they're sitting. Because mm-hmm. I don't like to make a deal with somebody and then two turns are gonna go by and then they're gonna fulfill their end of the deal. Yeah, because yeah. Because there's it's too so much much stuff is gonna happen in between. Yeah, it's too easy for, like, stuff to happen in that to get to their turn and then I'm gonna be like, well, I made that deal before these two people took their turn and I don't really wanna do that now. Yeah. I'd much rather, like, I make the deal with you and then I pass the turn to you. To you, yeah. And now there's not, nothing, nothing's happened in between now and then. You just have to do the thing.
2: Yeah, there's also, I mean, in, in, now that you speak about to go on about deals and how short term or long term they are in the last game nights, there was a moment where something happened and it directly benefited one player a great amount. And I looked at that player and went, Hey, I didn't mention it immediately, but it took like one turn cycle. And then I looked at them again. It's like, remember you owe me as opposed to like, Hey, this next turn, I need you to not attack me or to do X, Y, and Z. Right. So you're creating like a longer term treaty with that person. I think that's a better way to do a deal with someone that's super far away.
1: So that's something I would say that we probably all need to do a little bit more is think about where you're sitting at the table, what the geography is, uh, when you're making these decisions. You know, when you're thinking about doing something, I think a lot of people don't even calculate that at all. They're not yeah. like thinking like, okay, but how does turn order or where I'm sitting or where that person is in relation to me affect this decision? Because sometimes it might be enough to sort of sway you one direction or other and change the decision.
2: Yeah. I would also be wary too of when it is going to be a 3v2 against you or even a 3v1 because it does turn into arch enemy quite often. And that that should determine how you play your game. You shouldn't. You're really in no position to strike deals sometimes when you're the arch enemy unless you can directly benefit someone, or you're going to hold someone's like life by a thread. So it's a lot of interesting dynamic there too.
1: All right. So back to uh, World War One here. So we've got our two teams: Russia and France. They're allied. German, Germany and Austria Hungary. The Triple Entente, right? Triple Entente is not yet because Britain's not part of them. Oh, right. Spoiler right. alert: Br- Great Britain will join their side, but we're going to s- explain that. And the central powers are Germany and Austria-Hungary at this point. So they've got already alliances. But there's no conflict. They're just, if, you know, France is like, well, if we get involved in a war, you come to our aid, right, Russia? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah. So Great Britain, like I said, they have no alliances. They can sort of stay out of the conflict if they wish. And then so that kind of leads to this question of why does there have to be a conflict? Why is it inevitable? We talked about a lot of militarization. Mm-hmm you know, past grievances, the France and Germany and the Franco-Prussian War, steal, you know, taking the territories. Um, Germany had actually been doing something fairly recently at this time in that they had been building up their navy. And this was destabilizing because Great Britain, you know, if you look at Great Britain on a map, they're an island, right? Mm-hmm. They have the strongest navy in the world. They have to because that's how they can maintain their power. If you can't get to them, you can't touch them. Well, Germany starts building a bunch of warships. And they're like, what are you guys doing? <laughs>
2: Hello, we yeah. can see you doing this.
1: Yeah, this is not cool because you're threatening us. You're destabilizing you know, our ability to defend mm. ourselves, and it's threatening to us that you're doing that. Um, so there's that kind of heightened tension a little bit. Uh, Great Britain still had the, by far the most powerful navy, but they didn't like that Germany was doing that. France, still pissed off about losing their territories. They're pretty sure they're going to fight the Germans again at some point. And so their question for them was like, when is this fight, is this war with Germany going to occur? And they're looking at Germany, and there's two factors that are sort of scare them. One is Germany has a higher birth rate than France. So Mm -hmm. as they're looking at the the population, France is going at a certain rate, and Germany is going at a much higher rate. And they're just saying, well, like from today... Every day that goes by, Germany has more people than us, right. and that gap is widening. And also, Germany was industrializing at a much quicker pace, and so their technology and their ability to, you know, their factories and everything else were outpacing the French, and the French are going like, we got to fight them eventually. It's getting worse every day from now, so we should fight them sooner rather than later. It's like they're man ramping and... Putting out artifacts and stuff. And yeah, they're, they're
2: like, oh, okay. Guys, they're getting out of control yeah. over there. Should
1: we wait until they cast the huge stuff or should we start <laughs> the fight now, right? And Germany's kind of looking at Russia and thinking the same thing that France is thinking about them because when Russia made the alliance with France, France gave them a bunch of bank loans. Mm-hmm. And with the bank loans, the Russians are they're updating their military, their transportation, all of their infrastructure. And they're a huge country with a ton of population already. And the Germans are looking at the Russians being like, if we had to fight them, we we have an advantage now, we have a lot more technology, we have mm-hmm. a bigger you know we have a bigger army at the moment. you know we should do it now because they're gonna be a superpower pretty soon and they're gonna be much more powerful than us and it's just gonna be worse if we have to fight them in you know five, six, seven years. And so there was almost a desire on both sides to start the conflict at some point soon because they both saw disadvantages to be up. waiting. Yes. So the lesson for commander, or I guess the question that this made me ask was, you know, while, whenever you're playing, is it better for you to fight now or later? And by fight, I mean sort of initiate trying to win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like there's a time in a commander game where you're like, okay, I'm going to try and either knock somebody out or start winning now. Um, and I believe that people don't take into account the question of like, is it better for me to do that now or later enough? They just kind of decide because they have the cards in their hand or whatever. But I think that it's necessary to sort of look at the board, look at what everybody's doing. You know, if, you're, if Jimmy's drawing a bunch of cards through some sort of effect or whatever, and that's a repeatable thing that he's going to be able to keep doing, and I can't match that card draw, well, then it's going to get way worse for me later in the game. I need to try and get Jimmy out of the game now.
2: Mm-hmm. Or get rid of the ways he's drawing cards or deal with the situation at hand in some way. Yeah. Because there are a lot of times when someone goes crazy and you're like, oh, my gosh, they just dumped their hand. Everything's happening. But there's, they're not drawing many cards and they only have one card left in their hand, which means if something gets board wiped or if they get put back in any way, then they all of a sudden went from top to bottom in terms of threat level.
1: Yeah, I really like that point, right? If somebody blows up and their board presence is really crazy, but you go, well, how many cards do you have? And they're like, one. And you look at their board and they don't have a lot of ways to draw cards. And, you know, maybe whatever they did was through something that they don't have a ton of mana. Yeah, or they cheated it all out and yeah. wouldn't be able to do it again if it got put back in their
2: hand kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of like, uh, it's not as worrying because you're actually in that moment going, well, okay, but the longer the game goes, the better it is for me. Right now they're mm-hmm. ahead, but I actually need to wait. I don't actually want to try and do anything. Uh, Because the longer I wait, the better it gets. You know, Mel, on the other hand, Mel Lee's famous quote of like, I don't have enchantment removal, but I have player removal. mm -hmm. That's a thing where like, if you look at their board and it's like, okay, you have consecrated sphinx. I have no way to kill it, Mm -hmm. but I might be able to knock to kill you. Right. And that's like initiate win condition, start trying to win now. And I think that's a really important lesson in commander and something to keep in mind all the time. Is it better for me against, you know, the table or against any specific player? Is is am I getting stronger in comparison to them, or weaker as the game goes on? Yep. So the rule is, don't go to war unless you have a legitimate reason to
2: do so, or you have your economic system in place, and you're not going to have to worry about resources and replenishing yourself and all that stuff, because you don't want to be broke after entering into a, a like, right? It's a war. It's not a battle. Don't win battles. Win the war.
1: Yeah, I would say though that like there are times in games where you're unlikely to win. Mm-hmm. But your only chance to win is to do something now rather than later. And right. it may be like it may be like, listen, they're ahead of me now, but it's gonna be they're gonna be even more ahead of me later. So now is the time when I have to make my move, even though that's still unlikely to to work. It's yeah. the only, like, it's definitely not gonna work later. So, you know, there are moments in all games for all of us sometimes, where it's just like, you don't have a chance to win that game. Mm-hmm. Or you don't have a good chance to win that game. And so your only chance is like, well, this is unlikely to work, but it might, let's do it. Necessity breeds creativity, is yeah, that what it is? Yeah, I guess so. Something breeds creativity. <laughs> um, okay, so back to uh, the, the actual war. I wrote, in and into this tinderbox, a match. So wait, well, let's strike the match. Oh, wait.
2: Crap. <laughs> uh, yes. Merry Christmas. Merry
1: Christmas. So we're going to talk about sort of the the event that kicks off and starts World War One. And it's one of the crazy coincidences in all of human history, maybe the single most impactful coincidence in the history of the planet. Yeah, we've had some
2: crazy coincidences before, like those photo albums I like where it's like, haha, you won't believe when these pictures were taken. (laughs) This plane just happened to be passing this person and it happened to make this effect. No, no, this is this started a war.
1: It started a war, led to a second war, led to the Cold War, changed the planet. Yeah. Um and it was And made a great band. And made a great yeah. band. And it was something that I mean, the odds say is just not likely to happen. So there was an archduke named Franz Ferdinand. That's the band. band. But it actually named out. after a real person. So uh Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke, was the heir to the throne of the Austro Hungarian Empire. So they're ruled by monarchs. Um they're not all powerful monarchs, but Franz Fernand was the next in line, was gonna become the ruler of that nation um, you know, upon the death of his father. He was visiting with his wife the city of Sarajevo. Now, Sarajevo is was part of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, but so there was a faction within that city, within that area, that didn't want to be part of the empire. They thought they were Slavs. They were Slavic. They thought they were more rightfully be maybe included in some place like Serbia, which was right next door. Mm-hmm. And so when the Archduke comes to visit, he's kind of in a parade or a motorcade. Um, and a group of assassins, and there's, we're talking like 10 to 20 We'd call them terrorists now, right? Like a group of terrorists or assassins are planted along the route because it's just like modern day. They have a team of a PR team and a a media that comes and says, "This is the archduke's coming, and he's going to go along this route, and he's going to wave at the crowd, and you know, here's where the parade's going to go." And Mm -hmm. so the assassins are like, "Sweet, he's going to be here driving along this road in an open car with his wife. We're going to station assassins along the route, and whoever has the best opportunity is going to kill this guy." Yep. And so he's going along the parade route. And at one point, you know, they go past a couple of the assassins and they don't have a good, they can't do it in that area because there's too many people, too many other Serbians they don't want to kill. Finally, one of the assassins sees his chance and he runs up to the car and he has a bomb in his hand, more like a hand grenade. Mm Mm-hmm throws it at the car. The Archduke actually sees the guy come out, throw it. Ducks behind the car. It bounces off like the door of the car, rolls into the street to the next car in the motorcade, rolls over the bomb, boom. Bomb goes off. Everyone screams, runs. People are injured, of course, but the Archduke is fine. It didn't hit his car at all. But of course, parade's over, right? Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They they pedal to the metal, get out of there, and you know, the assassins are like Opportunity missed. Like we... We, Yeah, we messed up. We had a lot of contingency. We had people planted along the
2: route. uh, But just for whatever reason, no one could get a successful shot fired at uh, Franz Ferdinand. So we missed it. Yeah, and they
1: don't know where the Archduke's going to be. From this point, there's not a really good way for them to be like, okay, well, let's get him later. Well, where? Where is he going to be? What time? With who? We don't know. So they kind of go their own ways. The the assassins kind of break up. And the Archduke and his wife decide that they're going to go visit the injured people from the catastrophe... Um, at the hospital and so they get back in the car the same car it's like a convertible and they're driving either to or from the hospital i forget which Mm -hmm. um and the driver takes a wrong turn and somebody informs the driver oh this is not the route that we're taking we need to stop in reverse and he goes okay stops the car puts the car in reverse this is 1914 you know automobiles are still kind of new the car stalls whoops so they're on the corner of a street the car stalls. And on that corner of the street is one of the assassins. By pure coincidence, a guy named Gavrilo Princip just happens to be on that corner. And the the person that he is in the city to assassinate that they failed at earlier pulls up in a car and the car dies, like right in front of him. He's a, a little bit above, I think, like on the steps or something. And he sees... There's the Archduke, pulls up in the car, car dies, and he whips uh, out his pistol, shoots the Archduke and his wife dead. What are the chances of that that? <laughs> it's crazy. Ridiculous. It's crazy. Everything about
2: it, right? Had the car been running,
1: they might have been able to get
2: away, but the fact that he just, you know, maybe he's bummed out, just sitting there like, ah, oh, we could not do it. Here comes, it's like out of a Coen Brothers movie, honestly. Yeah.
1: It's like, man, I was here to kill this guy. And we failed. And when are we ever going to have that chance again? And the guy just walks up. Yeah, it's like, hello, it's
2: me. <laughs> yeah. Let me stand here defenseless for a second. Yeah. So that that was the assassination
1: of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So the Austro-Hungarian Empire decides that the assassins, these, Serban, these Serb nationalists, are actually like like state-sponsored terrorists. Oh. So they decide to blame. And and we don't know. It could be true. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they've ever uncovered real evidence either way. Um, but it doesn't matter because Austro-Hungaria or Austria-Hungary acts as if Serbia is behind this assassination. And so obviously they're mad mm-hmm. and they're going to attack Serbia. And the problem here is that Russia is sort of the traditional protectors of like the Slavic people and... They don't. They're going to come in on the side of Serbia here. They're going to protect the little guy. And so Austria goes to Germany and says, "Listen, we're going to attack Serbia, but if we do that, Russia is going to come in to the war. And if Russia comes in, you know, you're our ally. Are you with us?" And Germany says, "Yeah, go ahead, get Serbia done now." I think is the quote. Really? Yeah.
2: Done now. Jeez. They kind of
1: think they're going to go into Serbia and just just. You know, kick their butts real quick, which does not end up happening. The Serbs are, are, they're badass warriors. And, yeah. um, and, and so, but anyway, traditionally, that's the way the story goes. And so now we have a conflict that's about to erupt where Austria, Serbia, then comes Russia, then comes Germany. And then, because of the alliance, France will come into the war. And Germany is going to be in that position that we talked about where they have an enemy on both sides, where they have Russia on their east and France on their their west. So Germany's now faced with enemies on both sides, but they've known this is going to happen. And like we said, they sort of wanted this fight because Mm -hmm. they have a plan to deal with it. It's called the Schlieffen Plan. And this is where sort of the biggest mistake in the war happens. And what a lot of people point to as the reason Germany ultimately loses this war. And something we failed to say earlier is that the Germans have the greatest military in the world at this point. They have the best army in the world. It's not that close. They kicked the crap out of France earlier. Russia is not industrialized to the point um, that they that we know of them now. As mm. Austria Hungary is not their equal. Britain is a sea based power. They're they they do not have a land army that's worth you know that's very big at all. Germany is the creme de la creme as far as armies. And they make I would call it like one of the biggest mistakes in human history here. So their Schlieffen plan is their plan to fight a two front war. and it basically says, if you got to fight two enemies, what you got to do is knock one out really quick so that you can turn around and then fight the other. and they their their plan is, okay, we're gonna throw everything we can at France, knock them out of the war, and then we can turn that stuff around and hold off Russia. Mm-hmm. And they're literally on like a they think they can defeat France in like, you know, a a few weeks like they're going to march in they have this big plan to march in just overwhelm the french and then turn around and face the russians the problem is that there's this line there's this line of defenses on the french german border because they've fought just a few years you know they fought 40 years before they're antagonistic towards each other it's super fortified the germans are like we can't go through that way Mm -hmm. but there's another way around if we come in from the north the only problem is that's the country of belgium And the Germans are like, well, if we gotta get France done really fast, we gotta get in there and and knock them out. Gotta take the best path in. And they decide, they decide that their plan is going to be to advance through Belgium, go around those defenses in France, and then hit France from the north. Like we said earlier, Great Britain at this point is not involved in the conflict. They're not they don't have any of these weird alliances Mm -hmm. where they have to like get involved. And the British people, you know. Great Britain is a democracy, or at least a representative democracy, and there's not a lot of public support for getting involved in this war in Great Britain. Right. Just two days before you know, before they switch sides and actually join the Allies in what we call the Triple Entente, the British people are like, no, we don't want anything to do with this war. And the British government, who I think does kind of want to be involved in the war because they do have some agreements they want to uphold— but it's unclear whether they can just make those choices. They could get overthrown mm-hmm. by other by other factions in their government. And then the other factions in the government come in and go like, listen, we're not going to you know, uphold any of these little handshake deals we have. We're staying out of this war. But then Germany invades Belgium, which is a neutral country. Just marches in, being like, eh, we don't care. We're doing it. We have to. It's the yeah. only way we have a chance of winning and blah, blah, blah. And they sort of think that Great Britain won't, that won't involve them and nobody will think it's a big deal because it's just a little Belgium. But the problem is that great Britain does have a a written deal, a very old deal to guarantee the neutrality of Belgium because it sits in a very strategic location. They haven't wanted anybody to be able to go in. They basically said like, listen, Belgium is a little country. They can have that area, but I don't want any other France, Germany. I don't want you guys going into that area and taking that. So we're going to make a statement that if anybody goes in there, we're, we're at war with them yeah France actually had the same deal with Belgium and so did Germany they're breaking it when they go in there and then so what happens is Germany is sort of hoping the British won't get involved they won't get involved they start to go into Belgium and and Great Britain once they Germany once it's clear Ger- Germans have entered Belgium they they issue an ultimatum to Germany and say listen you got to get out of Belgium according to our thing otherwise you we're going to be at war with you And there's a lot of controversy here and a lot of people criticizing Great Britain for for saying, or criticizing Great Britain saying, why didn't you just tell the Germans before they went into Belgium that you would go to war with them? Like, hey, guys, don't go in there. instead of waiting for them to go in, then letting them... Once they're already in, in. once they're already in there and you go, hey, listen, get out or else, they can't, like, it's very tough for them to be like, oh, sorry, and then go. It's like a tail between their legs. Deal. And so that is... Another lesson, here's our commander lesson from it, and something that I believe a lot of people don't do enough, which is a lot of clarity in communication while you're playing.
2: This is just a general good life lesson as well. Communication may be one of the biggest things that I think is overlooked in today's day and age in terms of clarity and just making sure your intent is known and what you're trying to convey.
1: And why, right? Yeah. So, I I mean, I have a question written down, which is how many games of commander have been lost because players did not declare their intent or what their response would be to certain moves? Right. Now, we're not saying spell it out entirely, right? You could I your mean,
2: you can, but, motives, yeah. but you should still be very clear about the terms of engagement before you go into it. You can have other like technicalities, and we talk about these on the show a lot, but yeah, definitely. I
1: mm-hmm. mean, people do learn, like, hey, don't attack me with that. I'm going to destroy it. Mm-hmm. But I also like saying, like, listen, I don't want, like, people start to do something. Like, I'm going to play aura shards. Don't play that. If you play that card, I have to try and kill you. Right. Like, all of my board is enchantments and artifacts. So if you play that, just by playing it, you are saying, I'm at war with you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because eventually, sure, you may get rid of other problematic things, but who knows and when's it gonna, when it's going to I just, on me.
1: Yeah, I just can't trust it to be sitting on the table. So just don't play that card, and everything's cool, and we're fine. But as soon as you play it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Or, you know, things like that. I, I like being very clear with, like, ah, don't do that. You okay. can have your fun. I'll let you have your fun. You know, but that's one step too far, and that's going to bring me in especially when you're involved in a conflict like it's me and Jimmy and I'm about to do something that this person over there is going to be affected. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that person over there does want me and Jimmy to be fighting and they don't want to be involved because it's better for them. But as soon as you play like a destabilizing thing or do something like invade Belgium, then all of a sudden they're like, well, we got to come in. So yeah. it's good to be clear, although, and I will stay, there's another side to this coin. And I said, obfuscation can be powerful too because you could make the statement and – Some people have, I don't know if it's true or not. Again, we don't know these things, Um, that the British government did want to get involved in the war and therefore did time the ultimatum specifically Mm. so that they could get involved because what happened was as soon as Germany goes into Belgium, British public totally flips. Yeah. They don't want to be involved, but then it's like the Germans like stabbed like an innocent person. Right in front of them. Yeah. And saw it happen.
2: Yeah. And carving that person apart to get to another person. Yeah.
1: It's like this person's yelling at you and they're going to get in a fight and you pull out a knife and just stab like an innocent person is the first thing you do. It's yeah. just like that didn't look very good. And all of a sudden the British public just totally switches and says, no, now we want to fight the Germans and Great Britain's in the war. And maybe that's what the British government wanted. Again, it's we the mentioned public approval. Yeah. And again, we mentioned like the naval buildup earlier as mm-hmm. some reasons that they might want to be involved in the war. And so, but just that's okay too. You can do those kind of things. You can use you know, an excuse, as it were, or time things so that it it gives you an excuse to get into a conflict. You know, I like to give reasons why I'm doing things in Commander games, even if it's bad, right? I'm destroying your thing. But a lot of times I'll be like, listen, I got to destroy that. Look at my, it's aura shards. Look at my board, Mm -hmm. you know? That's never going to hurt me more than if I said nothing. If I just destroy it and don't say anything, the person's going to be at this level of angry if i say have to,
2: they have to make up well that's the thing you're giving them the reason before they have to make it up for themselves yes
1: because if it's like why do you do
2: that oh could it be that one time i did this to them it's like no, no no i'm just doing it because of what's happening right here and maybe you are doing something because of the prior things but you are giving them you're being a diplomat
1: yeah exactly and then they don't react maybe in the same way they would i mean maybe they do but maybe they don't you have a chance to sort of like yeah. ratchet down the tension rather than you know, increase right. the tension. Yeah, and We're so- not
2: saying outright lie to anyone, but at the same time you get, I mean, in the same way that this is how it works in politics, you get to s- sort of mold the truth to better fit your narrative in that case.
1: Right. The thing so. that helps you as a quote unquote nation state in that moment is to, okay, I'm destroying that. It's only because of X, Y, Z. It's not yeah. because of whatever. And so many times, Josh, I can't, I, I yeah. love it when it
2: happens. When you do something like that, you blow something up, something gets destroyed and the, and the, per- you know, the justification happens and the other person goes, yeah, that was a really good, that's a good point, yeah. And it's and like, they you, tot- you lost a card. it <laughs> yeah. was a clear act of aggression against you. But you were like, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you made really good points. But <laughs> after a few
1: words, they're like, well, I'm a reasonable person and you're a reasonable <laughs> person, so I will not get angry. Yeah. It totally works. Um, I also like to separate, I like to make deals and then when I have to sort of go around the deal, separate it by a little bit of time. So you'll right. notice I've done, I think I've done this on game nights, I think I did it with Wedge where mm-hmm. I, I needed to destroy something of Wedge, but I also needed him not to attack me right now. So I made a deal with him and then waited a turn and right before his turn, I realized something like, "Oh, I got to actually kill that thing, Wedge. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but it wasn't part of our deal." And also like, I don't want to, but you know, it's just it's the it might just kill me out of nowhere for no reason. I have to kill it. Right. It's like a Perforos on the table or something. It's like, yeah. look, I
2: know you're not targeting me with it
1: specifically, but it's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you did that right after you made the deal. Oh, my gosh.
0: Well, like, wait a minute. Everyone's I just made to you. you. Right. Yeah. But if
1: you just wait, and it doesn't have to be that long, like one person's turn, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden they don't connect that dot, and you can yeah. sort of get out of it scot-free,
2: as it were. I mean, even better if that card you're problematically dealing with is also a problem for someone else, right? You're giving it more time to breathe and be out there in the air. It's like, we've just unveiled our new weapon. It's like, cool, let's have everyone take a look at it. Maybe someone's gonna get blasted. (laughs) It's like, all right, now it's gonna go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the invasion of Belgium does, besides bringing Great Britain into the war, which is awful, right? Great Britain is the the richest nation in the world at this point. I think uh, France and Great Britain collectively control like two-thirds of the planet Mm -hmm. at this point i mean you can make a real real good case that if the uk doesn't join the war that germany wins ultimately yeah can beat off france and russia
2: who's going to uh, combat them on that level right france already lost a war to them i don't think france is known particularly
1: well for winning wars throughout history Uh, i mean under napoleon and some other times they they, they've 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 been um Unfairly treated by the United States, I believe, because of sure. World War II. But France was a great land power all through the 1800s and the late 1700s. I mean, they're 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 brave fighters, right? They yeah. like the amount of people that France loses in this war is crazy. But at the same time, without the without Great Britain, I just don't think they could stand up to Germany. Anyway, regardless of that, because of what actually does happen, invade Belgium, stab the innocent guy at the start of the fight, the entire world changes at that point. And this is something that I think Germany sort of naively didn't understand. And even Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf about how the greatest battle that Germany ever lost in the First World War was the battle of propaganda, the battle of global public opinion. Yeah,
2: and Hitler was a master of manipulating opinion as well, as you can tell. Like, And he
1: became that master, I believe, because he saw the First World War and how propaganda could be so effective. Mm-hmm. And it was so effectively used against Germany You see, the German propaganda would normally portray the Allies, their enemies, as like clownish, buffoons, buffoons, imbeciles, which, as it turns out, is less effective than the Allies' strategy, which was to portray the Germans as vile, evil, dangerous, scary. Mm -hmm. They would have posters with like the Kaiser with like a bloody bayonet. You know, they wanted to portray him as like a bloodthirsty warlord, you know, a warmonger. And that strategy proved a lot more effective towards rallying people towards your cause than did the opposite strategy of, like, playing your opponents off as Mm -hmm. imbecilic or, you know, whimsical or clownish. Um, Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it makes a lot more sense, too, given, like, we all have stories of the evil, you know, leader, the evil warlord or whatever, and the clowns and buffoons are entertainers, so... While it may be good morale for the country it's coming from, like, haha, look, we're smarter than the rest of the world, we're better than them, it's not as provocative as, look, these people are clearly not good people, and what they did, they just stabbed an innocent guy, the proof is in the pudding kind of thing.
1: So the commander equivalent of propaganda is your table image, right? And the table image of other people at the table. Mm -hmm. And so this is something I think that you should be trying to manipulate and keep in mind at all times. The, it's sort of in two steps. One is you're trying to paint your opponents. You're trying to propagandize against your opponents. So this is something we've talked about a lot, right? Like pointing out um, combo pieces. Like, oh, man, he's Here got he that comes. card. A blasting station. You yeah. know what happens next. Yeah, you don't want him to get... He's got exquisite blood. You know, if he just draws or tutors for Sanguine Bond, we just all die, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, things like that. Or, oh, last time we played, he turned four, killed me with that, or yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, or, you know, I talk about even talking about the decks before the game begins. Like, you're right. playing Animar? Oh, geez, that deck is so good. Like, just at the start when mm-hmm. everyone's shuffling up, planting the seeds, making your opponents scary, making them seem dangerous. Don't make your opponents seem e- evil. It's a game, okay? Yeah. Um, Never take any of the. Don't propagandize your friends in real life, by the way. <laughs> yeah.
2: This is all within the game. And if I catch any of you guys doing this in real life, it's gonna, it's it's gonna it won't be pretty.
1: <laughs> We've had enough drama recently. We don't need to take this outside the game. But the thing I came to realize... Because I was thinking like, you know, nobody ever really paints their opponents as like clownish or stupid in in a game of Commander, right? Mm -hmm. That's just not something you can do. But you can paint yourself. Ah. And you don't want to paint yourself as scary or dangerous. Class clown? Yeah, or whimsical, Mm -hmm. a little bit frivolous. The jester. A little bit more fun. That is a persona that you can start to paint yourself with to affect other players. So you're, instead of one dimensionally where I'm just trying to like point fingers at everybody else, I can on the second dimension start to, you know, portray myself in a certain way that will make you react. So if we know that painting people as clowns and things makes them actually less scary, then that's a thing you can do about yourself. And I found myself finding examples in my own play of when I sort of instinctively would do things like this. And this is doing things like going, I, I'll say sometimes, um, Hmm. well, I know this is not the best play or the most optimum play, but this but, is the most fun play. Right, right. And then play some card like Minds Dilation or something. Mm-hmm, you know, or some. Or I'll say things like, oh, well, I know what I should go get in this instance with like a tutor. I know what I should go get, but I've never played with this card, so I'm just going to get this one and put it out. You know, and you're automatically putting everybody on the, oh, well, that guy, it's not that he's an imbecile. It's just that he's not playing super spiky. He's not going to get his combo piece. Yeah. And I'm literally telling them, look, I'm willing to let everybody have fun because I could be going getting something really oppressive, but I'm not. I'm getting something fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and painting yourself in that light to sort of maintain your table image how you want it to. Even if your priority
2: really is like, let's say your priority in that case was just to have fun, then great, you're doing the fun thing. But if your priority is like, I don't want this, I have some things in my hand that are going to really sway the public's opinion of me here in a second. I have a chance to give myself a buffer of enough time to set that up, to have that explosive turn. And I think that's a big thing that a lot of people have messaged us on the show, which is like, Hey, I've done all this stuff that you guys told me about, you know, the art of war stuff and it's done great, but now everyone's caught on to me. This is definitely that second dimension because you can really play the very simple, like, this person is dangerous. Everyone look at this person, point, 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 point. Level one. Level one. But level two definitely starts with being more like, all right, now how do I personally, if, now that people know that I'm trying to play this game, am I going to be that same person every time? How do I on?
1: deflect it, right? Yeah. Or yeah. just how do
2: I just, you know, become more of a all-around player and so that when someone sits down with me, it's not that they know what I'm going to do or how I play or what my tactics are. I'd like to rather be a little more unpredictable.
1: I like to sort of find ways to play the game well, but not... Like, I'll often be in a situation where I can knock out one person, but I don't Mm. like to do that if it's, like, early in the game. And I have sort of go out of my way to be like, I'm going to spread it around in this case because I don't want... And I believe that that comes back to me, you know, tenfold later when they and and the other three players have a chance to kill me and they go, you know what? I'm going to follow that lead because... Yeah. Yeah, because... He had the chance to kill me in the game last week, and he didn't just do it outright. Now, he did 30 damage to me, but he left me in the game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, those are the types of plays that I like to make. So, the play is still very effective. Like, I still get Minds Dilation. That card's awesome. Mm -hmm. But it's not tooth and nail. Right. So, it's like, I still make a really good play, and that play still has a chance to help me win the game. It just doesn't ice it. Mm -hmm. Because if you're the person that always ices it, always spikes it, always plays the best card, I'm not saying... Listen, there are plenty of groups, competitive EDH groups and stuff where that's totally fine, but you can't then complain later when everybody kills you first because you never show any mercy. Yeah. So they, you can't expect mercy from them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's a thing that I thought was, and maybe of all this stuff we've done, the biggest lesson was to not get so caught up in propagandizing your opponents that you forget that you should also be running your own PR campaign about your own image. Your brand imagery. You know, one of my favorite sayings that we use on the show all the time is you have to give action to get action. But I thought I should revise this to say, "Oh, you have to be seen as someone who gives action to get action. You there don't, you don't actually have to give it. You just have to be seen as someone
2: who gives it. And that's... Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. There have been so many times where I'm like, look, I'm going to do this and this and this. Just do that. And then the person does all that stuff, and I'm like, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to do half the things I just said. <laughs> but I'm just make do up some a, of them. You just make up an excuse.
1: Oh, I thought I, I could, but I actually I can't. Yeah, I can only do this. Uh, it
2: turns out, like, no, my my man got choked because so and so played Voronklex, you know, or this happened, and
1: I just can't do it anymore. A really interesting story about World War One, and you can see how France really understands uh, global public opinion and and what we would call table image. On the eve of war, when Germany's about to invade Belgium. France actually takes their entire army and pulls it back six miles from the border with Belgium. They do not want anybody ever to be able to say, hey, you guys actually went into Belgium first. Mm, They take an extraordinary step, and, and they're more worried about their image, their table image, than they are about the effectiveness of their fighting force even. And I've seen this in games where somebody's like, I saw once somebody played a decimate. There was a player they were kind of in a conflict with. They blew up two Or three of their things, but they wanted to make sure everybody knew I don't, I'm not against you. And they actually blew up one of their own things because they were yeah. like, I'd rather do that than make an enemy of you guys. And it, you know, that's the kind of thing that can work really well for you. Yeah. 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 You know, that you wouldn't think of doing. Um, so I thought that was really, really interesting. Okay. We're super long on this episode. I have a feeling. Maybe not. It's hard to tell because we've had to stop and start a couple times behind <laughs> the scenes here. Um, that's as far as we're going to get with World War One. I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. So, like I said, Germany doesn't win. You know, if you're interested in the end of the story. First of all, let me say, if you're interested in World War One at all, there are a lot of great books out there. Again, The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman is about the period we've sort of spoken of. Super interesting, famous book. John F. Kennedy famously made, like, his entire cabinet read it. He loved it. Um... Also, Hardcore History has the series Blueprint for Armageddon. I was I would highly recommend it. A lot of other books about the war. Um, what happens is Germany attacks Belgium. Um, they're sort of naively thinking, well, that's the most logical strategy, so everyone's going to just understand that, right? <laughs> and everybody's like, no, you're jerks. That's just you mean. Doing? You just stabbed the dude. Yeah, they kind of remind me of the uh, I always get targeted first player. Right. You know, they got the best deck. They got the most expensive cards. Germany has the best military and yeah. you know, and they're doing the logical things to try and win the game. And they're like kind of like, Why is everyone calling us good? Yeah, I'm, why is everyone mad? Like no one's playing like like to win like I am. That's that's just their fault, not mine. Yeah, it's war. Like, what do you guys it's what's neutrality mean in war? And so <laughs> they kinda of reminded me of that guy. Anyway, the war gets bogged down in a long stalemate, it's very famous. That's what World War One's actually known for. Trench warfare. Yep. Um, maybe at some point we'll go through more of the war because there are other lessons. There's a great naval battle called the Battle of Jutland, which is one of the few times that actually happened in the modern era. Mm-hmm. Um there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. Germany ultimately loses the war. Austria-Hungary gets knocked out, but Germany actually knocks Russia out of the war at one point. This is where the Bolsheviks take over and the Soviet Union is actually created. Mm-hmm. Uh France is on its last legs. Even in the very last year of the war, Germany almost wins. With the Kaiserschlacht, which is their spring offensive in the in 1918, they have make a big push. Almost win the war even at the end. It's not like World War II. And World War II is basically over in like 1942. It just takes a few years to wrap mm-hmm. up. But from that point on, the Germans have no chance to win. And this war is very interesting because there are chances for both sides to win early and late in the game. The one thing I wanted to talk about was at the end of the war, it's all over, the Germans... It, in a, it's a weird thing where they have agreed to end the war at a certain time on a certain day. I think it's like 11 o'clock on November 11th. Mm-hmm. And literally, like, they're all facing off against each other. And then that the clock strikes 11. The soldiers on Germany's side get up, and they walk away from the front. Like, it li- that's literally how it happens. But there's a little bit of a thing that happens near the end where the Germans demobilize, but the Allies don't. And so, as a result, when they go to the bargaining table, the Allies still have their military, and the Germans have sort of... They feel like they've been tricked at that moment, and they're forced into signing a, a surrender, kind of. Mm-hmm. The Treaty of Versailles. They sign it in some train cars in Versailles, the town of Versailles, and they're really embittered at the end of this. The Germans are. The, they stabbed a dude, though. <laughs> the, the American president has... His his name is Woodrow Wilson. He's got a, a list of 14 points. He wants a fair peace, and he's pushing that, and the Germans think that's what they're going to get, but France is not having it. They are nope. mad. They've got millions of people dead. Half of their country, Germans have been in it. There's poison gas all over it. There are miles and miles of France that are still you can't go into right now because you you might run into like a, a mine or a shell, mm-hmm. and the French actually push a very unfair peace upon the Germans, and this directly leads to the second world war um i'm not going to get into the the details but I, what i wanted to say is as a result when in world war ii hitler and the nazis defeat france in a super lightning blitzkrieg they actually pull out the same train cars in the same spot and they make the french sit in the same train car <laughs> and sign their surrender in the same spot and the lesson is be careful how you win And I see this a lot, too. And this is something that... This is a
2: great lesson, by the way.
1: Yeah, this is a lesson that can help you win more games over the long term. It it always reminds me of a saying that you can shear a sheep many times, but you can skin them only once. Right. If you win, and you win not only in a manner that people don't like, but you also do things like are a little bit boastful about it or a little bit happy about it, it's going to stick in people's memories. Especially when it's in the wrong way. If yeah. You drag someone
2: as a result or, you know, you win and now it's your soapbox. You know, that's that's not where you want to be. You want to be a graceful winner and not a sore loser either. You know, it's a good balance.
1: One of my favorite things to do is as soon as I win a game, start pointing out the cool things my opponents did that almost they won the game, right? Yeah. I want them to feel good at the end even though I won. Yeah. I'm like, oh, man, I didn't think I was going to win that because you did the thing and then you copied it and I thought this was going to happen and they're like, yeah, I almost had it, didn't I? Perfect. Yeah done. They barely even remember that I won. And so therefore it's not going to stick in their mind and I'm not going to become that player that they always target first or letting it's so easy for me when I look at someone and can tell they want to say
2: something about something. And it's not just because you won doesn't mean it's your time to be like table talk commander as well as like you're not the person that's going to lead this conversation. Like let everyone have their say because a a good game of commander, a ton of crazy stuff happens. You know, even going back and being like, yeah, I don't know if me doing this was right. You know, even though, even though you may have won, be like, I don't know about this step here. Like, what do you think? You know, and actually just talking about the game.
1: Oh, I love that. Because also you're giving that person so much respect, right? Like, yeah. I want your advice. That means I think of you as a person who's a good person to give me advice. You might know more about magic than I do. So yeah, I was unsure in this one moment of the game. What do you think? What would you do? What did I do it right? I'm not sure. Even though you won. After that conversation occurs, it's not sticking in their mind that that person just beat me. Yeah, It's sticking in their mind that I had a good time. And then the next time we go to play, I'm not like. Jimmy wins every time. I'm not going to let him win this time. Right. You know? It's like, I'm
2: okay with that person winning because they've never been a, a about it.
1: <laughs> it's not even, you know, I think a lot of people aren't even jerks, but they'll just, they'll be happy. It, it's natural. You're happy with yourself when you mm-hmm. win. And they'll be like, well, you know, I won all three games tonight. Man, never say that. Yeah. <laughs> never say that. In fact, I would never even win the third game. Yeah. I would like purposely not win the third game because I. it's not worth it. That one win is going to cost me 10 wins over the next two sessions because everybody's going to be like, that guy always wins. I'm not letting him
2: win. And Commander's such a crazy, wild format too, right? Like winning in Commander is not necessarily indicative of you just being the better player or whatever either, you know? And I also hope that when you do ask these questions to people afterwards or you're having these discussions, I would hope that whatever you do end up doing, it should come from a genuine place. You yeah. shouldn't just, just be doing something because you're like, aha, I know that this is gonna make that person whatever. I, then, I, I, I don't know, I think it's okay to do things. Even, I think to a certain degree, I think once you just start to make doing other people too, feel too better. much, you're starting to get into the sociopathy range. <laughs> I'm being totally honest here, right? Like You you always have to find a way to connect it back to who you are as a person. And if, if you're only doing things because you know it's gonna manipulate people to like you more, people will catch on to that yeah, as well that's very true. quickly. So genuineness does go a long ways when you're having these kinds of mm-hmm. conversations.
1: I mean, hopefully you are playing with people who you do respect what they would think about the game and the strategy and you mm-hmm. do want to hear other perspectives hopefully you are that kind of person but yeah you know yeah i think be careful how you win is is a is a big big lesson and yeah, it's actually from world war ii but whatever all right that's as far as we're going to go with this subject today to
2: the listeners
1: so Let's talk about what you have
2: learned in your play groups. Do you apply any of these sort of tricks or ideas of like, Oh, maybe I'll shape my own self image in a different way. Or this is how I changed my image from being the spiky. Everyone always wants to kill me into the just for funds player, even though I still want to win, you know, and this also like, I want to know, like, are you a 0% care if you win like prof? Are you a 50% %er like me? Or are you a 25% %er like Josh? Prof is not zero percent. He's like, he's like two or three (laughs) percent. He's definitely two or three. Yeah. He definitely
1: wants to win sometimes. Yeah.
2: I mean, winning is fun. You know, that's (laughs)
1: why we play the game is to eventually win. So, all right. Make sure you go to slash command zone, order your sealed product, your singles, all of your other ancillary product like sleeves and play mats. If you use that affiliate link when you do, you'll really be helping out this podcast and game nights and all of our content.
2: And make sure to also purchase some Ultra Pro products while you're out in the wild. Tons of great stuff, especially in the Christmas season. I think it's a really great gift to give someone a really cool play mat or even just sleeves, like stuff like that. To a Magic player, is so much more than like, "Hey, I bought you a precon." <laughs> even though precons are fun and I love precons, but I think a, a personalized—you can really personalize your gifts when it comes to buying product and stuff. So that's always nice.
1: Yeah, it's it's fun to sort of like bling out all your stuff and make it look good. And Ultra Pro helps you do that. Yeah, exactly. All
2: right, now it's time for the instep. I do have something I want to talk about. Oh, good. And it, and it involves World War I. Oh. It's the Christmas Truce. Yes. Oh, yes. We, we mentioned this a little earlier. Yeah. So the Christmas Truce was a widespread ceasefire that happened during World War One in 1914. It wasn't official, though. It wasn't It was a official. spontaneous thing it that happened. It was just something that people did because it was Christmas. And trench warfare is brutal. You're sitting in trenches. There's a, If you guys have seen Wonder Woman, I hate having to use this as a comparison.
1: No, I think it's good for like a modern person or somebody who's younger yeah. who's not you know wonder woman took place during world war one not two and right. these are the big trenches they dug and it's literally in the dirt you know yeah. above your head because if your head was above you're getting shot
2: and here are the two sides of the army and in the middle is something called no man's land so it'd be filled
1: with barbed, you know, wire, barbed
2: wire sometimes explosives and stuff and you couldn't cross it and the whole point is you would raise your head up take some plank shots but it was brutal it, you know awful living conditions and on Christmas in 1914, there was an unofficial ceasefire and there were reported cases of people getting up out of the trenches, crossing no man's land, beating the other forces of the other armies in the middle, exchanging greetings, being merry. And giving just, each other
1: like chocolate and
2: stuff. Yeah. For one single night during one of the bloodiest wars in human history, there was a beautiful peace and it spontaneously. Was spontaneously, right? Yep. Everyone just sort of felt it and it was Christmas. Everyone celebrated Christmas across as well. And uh, I'm going to jump on my mini soapbox here for a second and to say that this is a beautiful thing. Humans are all humans. If you meet someone in the wild, there's a very good chance you're going to be nice to them. And seeing someone in person is very different than talking to someone on the internet because you get to hear intent of voice, you get to see facial expressions. There's a whole lot more that happens in that case. And the Christmas truce, I think, is something that's a great example of the fact that at the end of the day, even though these people were intent on killing the other person because that's what happens in war, there is still always a base core shred of humanity that we can share with each other. And if you don't find that with someone and you find that someone is just not going to provide that back to you in the same way you're giving it to them, it's 100% okay to also walk away from those people because you're still in a truce. You're not hurting each other. You're not harming each other. So I hope you guys take all of that into consideration as you move into 2018 and beyond to be gunned to your fellow humans. And if you don't really want to interact with them, you, you don't have to.
1: It is a great metaphor, right? Like uh, they're shooting each other from a distance. That's yeah. kind of like the internet. It's, yeah, it's easy. Like, it's like you're mis- anonymous. Yeah, you're anonymous. You're just the you just stick in the But then you learn show. like, oh, uh or you realize that like we're more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. You know.
2: Certainly uh, more alike than we are different. And yeah. when the alien invasion does come, we will 100% realize this. <laughs> that the humans must band together.
1: Well, yeah, but that if it's... This a, but is if it's, our
2: Independence <laughs> Day.
1: <laughs> but not, what if it's a zombie apocalypse and not alien invasion? Uh, well, in
2: that case, w- w- they're not
1: alike, as alike as we... They uh, Okay, I'm done. Then we're screwed, everybody. Then, then we're screwed. screwed. <laughs> Make sure to check out our sister podcast, The Masters of Modern, Alex Kessler, Ben Bateman. They talk about the modern format, all things competitive magic. You can find them on Collected.company right next to us, and you can follow them on Twitter... At the MMCast. Our editor for the show is Terry Robertson. He's been doing these video podcasts for a long time now. So make
2: sure you check them out at YouTube.com slash The Command Zone Podcast. It is where you will see the video versions. And for this episode, we'll have lots of pictures from World War One. Uh, and of course, our faces as well. Uh, we're going to use a lot of those pictures to cover up a lot of the times that something messed up. We the had recording some technical stuff. difficulties. We had, we had hopefully, you difficult can't tell. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> uh, and of course, special thanks to Jeffrey Palmer at Living Cards MTG on Twitter, who does the opening and closing animations of the show, as well as helps us out with some of the animated backdrops that we use on game nights and the podcast.
1: Although this one was done by Balam Nahara, who also helps thank out. Thank you, Balam. So thank you, Balam. Yeah. All right, everybody. Have a happy holidays and yes. Merry Christmas. Happy and Hanukkah. Happy
2: New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Kwanzaa. Yeah. Whatever you celebrate. Even if it's like me where you family doesn't put the Christmas tree up anymore and you just sort of sit at home and say Merry Christmas to yourself in the morning. and hope It's still going to be happy. It's still going to be happy and merry.
1: <laughs> All right, everybody. Peace. We'll see you next on time. On Earth. Bye.
2: <laughs> Not to the aliens,
1: though.
0: <laughs>